The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. We're in a series called Off the Rails. As you can see behind me, there's the title, but uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If you're looking for a spot to land in Scripture, you can go ahead and turn there. And uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in. So God, thank you for your work. Thank you that, God, even as we look at, at what's going on around here and, and I heart, Father, we pray your blessing over all that we do, that we want to serve so well, that we love our communities well, from Marysville to Tulalip, out to Arlington, Lake Stevens, Everett, all over, God. We just pray your blessing over all that happens this week uh, for the projects we're going to take on, for from Nano and, and the kiddos stuff that happens from the block parties with our youth. God, we pray your blessing. We also pray as we look at our facility and, and move towards uh, breaking ground on, on some new space. God, we thank you for that. Guide every bit of what's happening these days as we move closer and closer in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, like I said, we'll be in Revelation chapter two. And if you missed part one or two, let me encourage you to go back and uh, take some time to listen, especially with part one. We kind of laid the groundwork in, in Revelation chapter one. This is John, uh, the disciple who's writing uh, from the island of Patmos. He was exiled there for persecution. He was a leader in the churches in Asia Minor. And uh, they sent him out there um, because they didn't want him having the influence that he had. And he had this vision. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're taking on the seven churches of Revelation. And those appear specifically in chapters two and three, and we're on church number two. Last week, we talked about Ephesus and forsaking your first love. Today, we're talking about the church in Smyrna. Let me go ahead and read the text, and then we'll jump into it. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So we jump in here in verse 8 and we look at the church in Smyrna. First of all, when it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, uh, another translation for that word really is the pastor or the leader of the church. And so you can look at it that way as well to the leader of the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna is a port city. Like last week we talked about Ephesus. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the area. Smyrna is a much smaller community. And, uh, and so this is kind of the, you could kind of compare, you know, the idea of like a large, big church, mega church to a much smaller church in Smyrna. And it says to those, uh, sorry, these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. Let me emphasize, just like I did in part one and said it last week as well, the whole of Revelation centers around Jesus Christ. And that's worth remembering because over and over it comes up. In fact, you can build part of our theology for the Trinity from what you read about in some of these words in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 about who Jesus is because it says... Uh, the, uh, these are the words of him who is first and last who died and came to life again. Again, a word for God, Alpha and Omega, Jesus first and last. Similar idea, similar picture, speaking of Jesus who is Emmanuel at Christmas time, God with us. So we get a picture of, of what this is about, who this is about, and it focuses on Jesus. It says, who died and came to life 
again. That's the cornerstone of the message of the gospel. That's the cornerstone of our faith. If we're in Jesus, that's what it's about. He paid the price for your sin and my sin. He paid the price that we can be made right with God because there was a penalty for all the mistakes, all the sins we've ever committed. So it's the cornerstone of the gospel. It says, um, uh, it says in verse nine, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, when it, when it talks about this, the church in Smyrna, again, is a small and struggling church against severe persecution. You could say Smyrna is the persecuted church. The message is the persecuted church. Now, the reason this matters, it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And you read that, and for some, you might go, well, how can that be? If they're poor, how can they be rich? Now, some of us know the answer. Some of us would go back to some of the words of Paul about this idea, and he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, you, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What we're talking about, if you understand it, is not worldly wealth. It's possible for somebody to be rich according to the pattern of this world and have all kinds of wealth and all these things and also be rich spiritually. But it's also possible for somebody to be poor and destitute, not have a lot of, of, of worldly riches and also uh, be, uh, sorry, be poor and destitute financially, but also be spiritually rich. And it's important to remember, this is what, what John is talking about. This is what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna. If you remember the Beatitudes, you've read them if you've been in Christ many times, blessed are the, and again, there's a word there, for you shall, and, and in, in Luke chapter six, that's where we find some of this. It says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, Luke six twenty. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven, for that is how our ancestors treated the prophets." At the core for the church in Smyrna, the reminder from the Lord is you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Don't worry that you don't have financial you know, wealth. Don't worry that according to the world standard, you don't have all this stuff amassed. Don't worry so much about that. Realize that you have all kinds of spiritual riches. And it's a great reminder for you and for me that while we may not have much or maybe we do, either way, we ought to be spiritually rich. We ought to lean into the value of what God has given us in Christ. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And part of the context of these afflictions is, yes, they were mistreated because of the name of Jesus. They didn't get certain rights because of the name of Jesus. It says, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not. You go, well, what is that talking about? If they're Jews, aren't they Jews? If they come from the lineage of Israel, aren't they Israel? What is he talking about? Again, if you're taking notes, write down Romans chapter two and Romans chapter seven. 
Paul systematically puts together the work of Christ on the cross for the church at Rome. But in Romans 2 and chapter 9, he talks about this idea that not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel. What he's talking about there, and it relates to what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, is this. They say they're Jews, but they're not following the Lord. In fact, it's worse than that. They're subverting the issue of the way or the the, the message of the gospel of Jesus. And the reason probably goes back to political power. If you remember, Israel was under Roman occupation during the time of Jesus. As, As history continues, that's still the case with this church. The Jews are under Roman occupation. What has come up though, and you see this in the trial of Jesus in the gospels is the Jews have certain rights to worship. They have certain rights to follow their own laws. They're given this by the Roman empire. So what happens is when Christianity springs up and comes along in the first century, the Roman Empire puts them under the umbrella of the Jewish faith, so they're given certain liberties. The Jews don't like that because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and so they kind of peel away and go, no, 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 they shouldn't have those rights. They're a cult. They 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 don't believe what we believe. Don't give them those rights. That is what Jesus is talking about when he writes this letter to the church in Smyrna. It says, um, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. And then, of course, Jesus never mints his words. In fact, he says, they're a synagogue of Satan. It's not a compliment. And it's, it's like I said, because what they're doing is basically throwing the Christian faith under the bus. What they're doing is saying they don't deserve the rights to peace and to assemble and do what they do. They need to be, they need to be treated as a dangerous cult because, because they're, they're, you know, causing people to peel away from allegiance to the Roman Empire and we're willing to kind of come under that umbrella. Don't let that happen. So when it says, I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, that's what we're talking about. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Now, let me stop for a second here. There's something about the Christian faith in the Western world, especially probably in America today, where what we tend to lean into is when we invite Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, things should go really well. And, and, and somehow that's a mark of God's blessing on our lives. So much so that when things don't go the way that you want them to go, when things don't go the way that you expect them to go, in fact, when they go the opposite direction, not only do you lament to your friends, it's like Murphy's Law, if anything can go wrong, it will, we begin to question whether God is even in our lives at all. And and we get weird about it. And yet it says here, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Do you know that suffering is part of the Christian experience? Are you aware That just because you invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life, it doesn't mean things always go perfectly well. And in fact, many of us have experienced the opposite at certain moments in deep grief and disillusionment. Be aware and be warned that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to face terrible times. Now, the weird thing is this. In this context, it's talking about persecution. And we, honestly, we don't know persecution here. We, we, don't, we, we put a, a bumper sticker on the back of our car that says something like, you know, uh, Jesus is the way to heaven and our neighbor in the middle of the night peels half of it off and we feel persecuted. Oh no, 
I gotta go find a new sticker. You know, or we wear a, a shirt that somehow proclaims our faith somehow and somebody gives us a weird look, oh, I feel terrible. Or we invite our friend we care about at work or our neighbor to church and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't do that. And we feel so horrible about that. Whereas there are all other groups in our world right now during us sitting in this room that are being persecuted to the degree that they're being flogged. That they were, they were caught with a Bible or even a page or a book of the Bible and they get thrown into jail. They lose ownership of certain properties. They're being beaten and some of them beheaded, martyred for their faith. And we feel bad about the bumper sticker that doesn't make any sense because it doesn't finish. It says in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And again, our theology is rocked when it says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Wait a minute, isn't God bigger than that? Can I ask you a question? What do you know about church history? What do you know about the disciples? I've mentioned before, every single one of them, besides Judas who betrayed Jesus and John who was exiled to an island after they tried to murder him and he didn't die, they all died martyrs' deaths. And all throughout church history, followers of Jesus have been severely persecuted. And oftentimes what you find is not them going, where is God in all this? Do you not care, Lord? But what you find them is standing boldly going, if I have to die for the sake of my faith, so be it. I've said before, my favorite words in scripture are the words of Paul in Philippians 1. And in a nutshell, it says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That for me to stand for my faith, and I can say it boldly from a stage where you and I are allowed to gather and do this and leave and not be arrested. And we ought to be deeply grateful for that. And yet we're not, we're entitled. And we're sitting here going, I didn't like the volume. I didn't like how that person dressed. I didn't like this experience. It's too cold in here. It's too hot in here. It's, you know, fill in the blank. They used to serve cookies. What happened to the cookies? <laughs> Jesus, have you left us? <laughs> right? I mean, and to be honest, I hear all that. I get wind of it here and there. I'm like, wow, man, we are a spoiled bunch. There are other great churches, you guys. There's all over. <laughs> Do not be afraid of what you are about to, everybody say, suffer. I'm telling you this, and you may not like hearing it, but suffering is part of the Christian experience. Hard things are part of the Christian experience. Difficult stuff, and maybe someday, and I'm not trying to say this as some bold declaration, but maybe someday a form of persecution that we've never known because we got it really good right now. We really do. And, and so it goes on, but it says this, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison, what? To test you. To test you. In other words, our Savior who loves us deeply will allow ourselves to be tested. Will allow our soul, our character, our spirit to be tested in certain ways. And some of you are, are wide open and have experienced those things. I've been in moments of such dark tunnels of my life that it feels disillusioning. And yet we sing a song around here where even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. I'm trusting that in the midst of whatever I'm facing, God, you're testing me and I want to pass the test. Do we have that kind of perseverance in our souls? The, the devil will put you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution 
It says for 10 days. And there are all kinds of ways to understand what is 10 days. Is it certain eons of time? Is it, is it you know, weeks? Like in Ezekiel, he talks about 77 weeks and the 77s, all this stuff. And, and most theologians go, I don't know that you can really define it. And I've said before, Revelation is a really challenging book to try to say this is what it means and this and then this and this. It is a hard one. So I'll just admit that. I don't know everything. Do my best. But the 10 days we don't know, all we know is persecution and suffering is part of the Christian experience. And I want to challenge you with that because we're not so open to that. We don't like it. And it says this, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you your victor's crown. Smyrna was the church that was smaller and facing severe suffering. And yet the Lord said, you got to endure, you got to persevere. And if you face death, Face it boldly because you're going to get the victor's crown. One of the things in church history you need to know is the next generation of leadership in the church, in Smyrna specifically, was a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp led the church there until he was martyred for his faith in 156 AD. When I was studying for this message, that was brought to my attention by my sister-in-law. And I remember reading a book that is not a fun read, but it's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anybody ever read it? You're like, yeah, that sounds fun. Okay, it's a tough one. But I remember reading about Polycarp in here and I found it. And I'm going to read a bunch, so bear with me. Talking about Polycarp, it says, Three days before he was apprehended, as he was praying at night, he fell asleep and saw in a dream the pillow take fire under his head and presently be consumed. Waking thereupon, it's written in some old English, so bear with me. He forthwith related the vision to those about him and prophesied that he should be burnt alive for Christ's sake. When the persons who were in search of him were close at hand, he was induced for the love of his brothers to retire to another village, which notwithstanding, the pursuers soon followed him. And having caught some boys, he whipped them. They whipped him until they would tell him where Polycarp was. The pursuers arrived late in the day, found him gone to bed in the top room of the house, whence he might have escaped into another house if he would. But but this he refused to do, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Hearing that they were there, he came down and spoke to them with a cheerful and pleasant countenance, so that they were wonderstruck, who, having never known the man before, now beheld his venerable age and the gravity and composure of his manner, and wondered why they should be so earnest for the apprehension of such an old man. He immediately ordered a table to be laid for them, and exhorted them to eat heartily, and begged them to, to allow him one hour to pray without ceasing, which being granted, he rose and began to pray, and was so full of the grace of God, that they who were present and heard his prayers were astonished and many now felt sorry that this so venerable and godly a man should be put to death. When he had finished his prayers, wherein he made mention of all whom he had ever been connected with, small and great, noble and vulgar, and of the whole church throughout the world, the hour being come for their departure, they set him on a donkey and brought him to the city. There he met Herod and his father Nicetes, who taking him into their chariot began to exhort him saying, what harm is it to say Lord Caesar and to sacrifice and to save yourself? At first he was silent, but being pressed to speak, he said, I will not do as you advise me. When they saw that he was not to be persuaded, they gave him rough language and pushed him hastily down so that in descending from the chariot, he grazed his shin. But he, unmoved as if he had suffered nothing, went on cheerfully under the conduct of his guards to the stadium. There the noise being so great that few could hear anything, a voice from heaven said to Polycarp as he entered the stadium, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. 
No one saw him that spake, but many people heard the voice. When he was brought to the tribunal, there was a great tumult, and as soon as it was generally understood that Polycarp was apprehended, the proconsul asked him, are you Polycarp? When he assented, the former counseled him to deny Christ, saying, Consider thyself and have pity on thy own great age and many other such speeches which they want to make. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent. Then Polycarp, with a grave aspect, beholding all the multitude in the stadium and waving his hand to them, gave a deep sigh and looking up to heaven, said, the proconsul said, Swear and I will release thee, reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul again urged him, swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, since you so vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly declaring what I am. I am a Christian. And if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and you shall hear it. Hereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, Polycarp answered, for repentance with us is a wicked thing if it is to be changed from the better to the worse, but a good thing if it is to be a change from evil to good. I will tame thee with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise the wild beasts unless you repent. Then Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished, but the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly you are ignorant of, but why do you delay? Do whatever you please." The proconsul sent the herald to proclaim thrice in the middle of the stadium, Polycarp hath professed himself a Christian, which words were no sooner spoken, but the whole multitude, both of Gentiles and Jews dwelling in Smyrna with outrageous fury shouted aloud. This is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians and the uh, subverter of our gods who hath taught many not to sacrifice nor adore. Then they called on another to loose a lion on Polycarp, but he refused. Then they unanimously shouted that he should be burnt alive, for his vision must needs be accomplished, the vision that he had earlier about his pillow. The people immediately gathered wood and other dry matter from the workshops and baths in which uh, service the Jews were particularly forward to help. When they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, leave me as I am, for he who giveth me strength to sustain me in the fire will enable me also without securing me with nails to remind, to, excuse me, to remain without flinching in the pile upon which they bound him without nailing him. And he said, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. They lit the pile on fire. He began to burn. They pierced his side. So much blood flowed out that the fire went dead and they stoked it up again and finally burned him to his bones and the believers in Jesus gathered his bones at the end. Why do I take time to read all that? Because we're talking about this issue of severe persecution and standing strong. And I say it not to belabor the point, but to remind us that, that you and I will face certain things that can feel so unjust and terrible. And it's not that God has left us but we're being tested just like Polycarp. And you think of the marvel of his martyrdom while tragic and terrible and horrible. How it was actually, as one person said, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you 
and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But listen, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Let me remind us in the midst of what feels so heavy that there is an eternity waiting for us. That God has designed something so marvelous for you and I as we persevere whatever it is that we face. He says the victor's crown. Paul uses the same language if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners won but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone, he says, goes into strict, uh, in the games, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul is saying this picture of the victor's crown comes as you and I not only persevere through tough things, but as holiness is developed in our lives. It's part of the mark of maturity, saying no to the sins of the flesh, setting aside those things that the writer of Hebrews would say hinder us from running the race well. Again, Paul says it towards the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure, he says, is near. I have fought the good fight. And here's this analogy again. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me, and here's that picture again, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will reward me on that day, and not only to me, but all who long for his appearing. Crown of life. Peter talks about it. In, in 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, the second coming, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. James, the half-brother of Jesus, a leader in the church in Jerusalem, says in chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the one who endures under trial because having stood that test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, on one hand, when we talk about persecution and persevering and enduring trials and passing tests and being challenged towards maturity, it can feel like something that sobers us up, and it should. But at the end of the day, because it's about the hope of the crown of life that we have waiting for us on the other side, whoever has ears, Jesus says to the church, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, as I explained last week, this is a don't just hear it and go, that's good, and leave here and be unchanged. Hear it and be aware that whatever it is that you face that will be at times overwhelming, that will be at times depleting, lean into who Jesus is because he gives you the grace to endure everything. And I don't say that having not experienced things that, like I said, have been dark pits in my own life. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then this, and this is the very end as we wrap this up, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And then we move on to the next church, which we'll get to. But let me explain this. It's important to understand what this means. Because not only are we said, hey, not only is Jesus saying, hey, listen, 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 pay attention, let this transform you. 
But this idea of victory, again, you will not be here at all by the second death. If you're taking notes, write down Revelation 20 and Revelation 21. I'm gonna read some things here, starting in Revelation 20, uh, I think it's verse three. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and of the word of God. They had, no, they had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And then in brackets here, parentheses, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. And here's that phrase again. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years a certain group specifically of martyrs that will be raised to the first resurrection at the end of things. Then it continues. Then I saw, and this is another section of resurrection. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there, as there was no place for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small. This is everybody who's ever lived. This is what it says in Revelation. Great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Here it is again. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 continues after this picture of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, everything being made right. The Lord would specifically say at the end of everything, he'll wipe all the tears from our eyes. No more death or crying or pain for the old order of things is gone. And then he comes back to this comment here in Revelation 21, verse six. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious, there's that picture again, will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. And then this warning, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And here's that phrase, this is the second death. I would be doing you a an injustice if I didn't talk about Revelation 20 and 21 here. And again, what it does in, in a lot of us is it sobers us up. We come to church and we wanna feel good and, and, and worship and, and the work of God in us should rise us up with joy, absolutely true. But there are certain moments, and this is one of those that I'll challenge you with the sobriety of what's coming. Scripture says there will be a second resurrection of all of mankind and there'll be there a great white throne judgment and it comes back to the book of life and what Jesus has done so that you and I our names could be written in it because we believe on the work of the cross for everything we've ever done wrong it's incredible news and to the church at Smyrna the Lord would say the crown of life you won't be hurt at all by the second death but the other side of it, and let me just say this again, soberly, that this is why as we gather to do church and, and encourage and challenge one another together, 
that we ought to walk out of here with such a heart for people that don't yet have Christ. It's why the message matters. We're not just playing church to feel good. We've said many times we're on a mission to make a difference in the lives of those around us. They can see Jesus through how we live, through what we say, through the salt and light that is meant to shine through all of us. And so as we talk about maturity in Christ, maturity isn't that you know more, but that what you know transforms what you do. And your heart for others is greater because it breaks when you read things like this. Pretty challenging. But again, the reminder for all of us, it still is a message of hope. You persevere, you endure, you get the victor's crown. You get all that God has prepared when you read the end of Revelation. But also the reminder of wanting people we care about to know that message. Does it matter like that to you? Do you carry it like that when you go to work? I say it all the time. When you take a walk around your neighborhood and interact with random people, when you hang out at family gatherings, maybe there's a reunion this summer coming. When you walk into a lobby or go out to park your car or leave, how you treat people, wherever you go, this is the gospel and it's not a game. It's a savior who died, a person who was so beaten and afflicted that he was unrecognizable. His back scourged with a cat of nine tails, leather strips with glass and metal and bone chips in it across his back 39 times. A crown of thorns put on his head to mock him as a king. He spit on him, ripped his clothes, went to the cross. It ought to move us. It ought to open our eyes to how powerful it is to know that he paid the price for you and me and all those that we love. And that's the message we live for. Endure all the hard stuff. Represent the message of the gospel wherever you go. And when you get a chance to talk about it, do it. Don't miss the opportunity because it matters. Father, today, yeah, it's a sober message. But I pray that you would do something in us that maybe some of these moments, while I'm all about having fun and I love joy and upbeat and laugh and all that stuff, but there are moments in our faith that I think can shake us and maybe wake us up and maybe today's that kind of day. And I just pray for a, a life in us that rises up through your Holy Spirit that not only gives us that spirit to endure anything that we face, from, from personal trials of our own situations in life and relationships or health or whatever to, to persecution that maybe at some point we would face. But also God, the ability to love so well those around us that they see the gospel displayed in how we treat them and how we interact with them as neighbors, coworkers, family members, friendships. God, we say it a lot. But Father, I pray you would continue to grow our hearts for a world that needs you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.